1: It is the year 2005. The treacherous Decepticons have conquered the Autobots' home planet of Cybertron. But from secret staging grounds on two of Cybertron's moons, the valiant Autobots prepare to retake their homeland.
2: Megatron
3: must be stopped, no matter the cost. You got the touch. You got the power
2: Now, all we need is a little energon And a lot of luck More than you
3: imagine, Optimus Prime I would have waited an eternity for this It's over, Prime Dinobots, destroy Devastator such heroic nonsense. We all must die sometime. Not today, Galvatron.
4: We've got Decepticons at the gates. Decepticons in the air. Decepticons inside the walls. Decepticons. 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 If we beat them off the walls, they're still in the air. If we shoot them out of the air, they're still the at the, the gates. So it does that leave us nowhere? That's where.
3: I fear the wounds are fatal. Prime, you can't die. Cliff Jumper, commence countdown. Five. Four. Three,
5: two, one. It is the year 2005, and a new novel threatens the galaxy in the most incredible adventure you've ever
1: seen. Transformers, the movie. The most incredible rock and roll adventure ever is here. Feed him to the shark Starring Judd Nelson as Hot Rod, Leonard Nimoy as Galvatron, and Orson Welles.
3: Transformers the movie Transformers
6: Hello, you're listening to Rock and Or Roll, I'm BJ, and this episode has been in the works for a while. So The Transformers The Movie is a six million dollar animated film that came out in 1986. It was co-produced and directed by Nelson Shin, who also produced the original Transformers television series on which the film was based. The origin for that series was a line of toys produced by Hasbro, which were vehicles that transformed into sentient robots. You're probably familiar. The Transformers the movie featured a fascinating cast doing the voice work. We've got Eric Idle, of monty python fame judd nelson most famous for the breakfast club leonard nimoy from star trek casey kasem famous dj and the voice of shaggy on scooby-doo robert stack the host of unsolved mysteries and the film marked the final roles for both orson wells who died the year before its release and scatman carruthers who died months after the film's release. The Transformers the movie also spawned an amazing hard rock soundtrack, which is the focus of today's episode. On this episode, you will hear my conversations with Stan Bush, who wrote and sang The Touch, Vince DeCola, who wrote the song Dare, which was sung by Stan Bush, and Vince also wrote the score for the film, and members from three bands featured on the soundtrack. Jerry Best, the bass player for Lion, who recorded a heavy metal version of the Transformers theme. Ernie Petrangelo, guitarist and songwriter from NRG, responsible for the killer track Instruments of Destruction. And Larry Gilstrom, guitarist from Canadian heavy metal band Kickaxe, who were credited as Spectre General for the soundtrack. And they contributed two songs, Nothing's Gonna Stand in Our Way. And hunger. I unfortunately was not able to speak with Weird Al Yankovic, whose song Dare to Be Stupid is the last song on the soundtrack. But let's go through the track listing kind of in order here and get the inside scoop from the men who were involved in creating this awesome soundtrack, Song by Song. You got the touch! You got the power! My general idea for this episode of my podcast is to focus on the Transformers soundtrack, and I'm trying to talk to somebody from each band. Obviously, you're the most important person to talk to, so until, until I heard back from you, it was like, you know, I didn't know if I was going to be able to do this episode or not, so I was very glad to hear back from you.
7: Oh, no sweat, yeah.
6: I've been reading interviews, and it seems like I would think maybe you're sick of talking about it, but it seems like you're not, <laughs> you know?
7: <laughs> no, no, it's cool, I... Eh? I really love the the whole thing, the brand, the uh, association with the 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 the, the, uh, the brand and everything else. You know, I mean it's been it's been really cool to be involved in the the Transformers conventions and whatnot, and uh, and the, the fans are all are incredible. You know, it's just really neat. It's a it's a fun thing. You know, it's a, to be associated with.
6: Yeah, yeah, it must be. Yeah, I'm, yeah. A, I'm a huge fan of this kind of music, like what they call AOR, you know? So. Yeah,
7: yeah, yeah. I got I got you. Me too. I still I kind of stuck in the 80s, the 70s too. I mean, I love this stuff.
6: Yeah, yeah. I was 12 years old when the Transformers, the movie, came out, so it was a big deal. I remember it was a big deal at the time. I remember going to see it in the theater with my brother, and I think my brother was the one that got the, the soundtrack tape. And we really loved it, and I still, you know, love it to this day. I still will listen to it all the time. So Scotty Brothers put this out, and then the next year you had an album with Scotty Brothers, and Lion also had an album. So did they? Did you get signed to Scotty Brothers before you became involved in the soundtrack, or was your involvement in the soundtrack is that what led to the record deal?
7: No, it was uh, Scotty Brothers got the the thing placed with uh, Transformers the the song the song wasn't written for the transformers but scotty brothers got it placed and yes i was i was already signed to scotty brothers
6: uh before that happened okay so was the soundtrack almost kind of used as a promotional tool too because they were gonna it was a way to kind of promote you and lion at the same time that they were putting out this soundtrack yeah yeah they were yeah
7: right yeah they were they were big into the soundtrack uh phenomenon i guess of course you know about survivor you know that was their biggest claim to fame right Um, yeah huge record um and of course they had also that uh it it was another you know fairly successful film and and uh beaver brown band yeah john cafferty Cafferty.
6: yeah he was on the cobra he was on the cobra soundtrack Yeah. yeah yeah
7: and that's what's funny because the the touch we lenny macaluso and i wrote the touch and we wrote it with Cobra in mind. Then of course it wound up getting uh uh in the Transformers movie instead. But yeah, John Cafferty, uh, there was another movie besides Cobra that he had uh uh a hit with uh, uh Eddie, and the, big... it, Eddie yeah. and the Cruisers. That's it, Eddie and the Cruisers, yeah. So I was yeah, he was on Scotty Brothers, uh Robert Tepper
6: and myself and of course uh, Weird Al, you know. Yeah, were you aiming for the Cobra soundtrack because the Stallone movies had had so much success with their soundtracks? So that was, I think so. Yeah, yeah
7: that was probably the idea. I mean, it was. I don't know if you heard this story, but Lenny, uh, he actually came up with the title by watch. He was watching Iron e- Iron, Iron Eagle Two with uh, Louis Gossett Jr. and he it's about a fighter pilot thing. And he turns to this guy and says, "Kid, you got the touch." And it was like, "Wow, what a song!" You know, it was like that inspired <laughs> the song. Yeah. <laughs> right now,
5: you're probably filled
7: with all
5: the doubts in the world. But I'm going to tell you something. Doug, baby. God doesn't give people things he doesn't want them to use. And he gave you the touch. It's a power you have inside of you.
0: Down there where you keep your guts, boy.
6: <laughs> well, so I was looking at the writing credits on Boulder, and I think you only co-wrote one song on that so then yeah yeah
7: the the other guy bob harris was the main singer and the main writer in that band and i was kind of like you know second fiddle in in a lot of ways in that band but we we formed in colorado and uh then that band got signed uh we were in boulder colorado and we got signed to electra and that's when we moved to la and we did the one record and broke up after that the other guys in the band all got the the gig uh, being Warren Zevon's backup band after the record came out and they went, went off to do that. And then I started, uh, I got a chance to do a solo project, you know, uh, with uh, the mastering engineer from, from Electra records. We were doing kind of nights and weekends to do the secret album project. (laughs) And that's what wound up getting me the deal with CBS back then. So it's kind of a cool little thing it just worked out that way i never really set out to be a solo artist but it's just kind of how it came about
6: yeah well in the time between boulder and when your album came out in 1983 that kind of music had really kind of spread and become popular right yeah Uh, so that you made that shift because boulder doesn't really sound very much like that i guess there's certain elements of it but you definitely made a big shift yeah yeah on your... Well
7: Boulder was a very it's funny cuz that band before we were called Helix and we formed we were in Colorado for like almost 3 years uh before we went to LA but that band and the early stuff we did was like more jazzy you know it was like uh we were trying to be Steely Dan or something you know it's like right. just all of, all over the map but then we started trying to move to more towards the rock thing and that Boulder album was kind of a mishmash of stuff you know but it was It was a weird time, you know, that was uh, the producer was like a weirdo. And, uh, you know, he got fired. The same thing happened with my first solo album. The the head of A&R got fired before the album came out. So nobody nobody promoted it, you know.
6: Oh, you hear that story so many times. (laughs) Yeah,
7: yeah. You get caught in the politics, you know.
6: So you guys had written The Touch. What year did you guys write that? It
7: probably was 86. I mean, that could have been uh 85 but it was kind of cool because uh, scotty brothers this one producer the, the one who produced my record richie wise he was like um we used to call him the cheerleader of rock you know he would just like start jumping up and down waving his arms <laughs> he was like he's all he'd really he'd get really excited he told me he said i want to make the best the greatest rock and roll album ever made i mean he's just like that huge uh you know amount of like confidence and and all the stuff and Love Don't Lie it was a great song. That was actually the song that got me signed to Scotty Brothers when Richie came and heard um, my showcase at one of the studios here in L. A. Was some stage things, you know, and they came and it was like he just fell in love with that song. And it was like, I'm sorry, I'm really diverting here from no, your theme. Go ahead, <laughs> go ahead, and uh, let, you keep us on track, okay?
6: So you got the you got the Scotty Brothers deal because of Richie Wise. So then, how did how mm-hmm. did it come to be that that your song The Touch Ends up on the Transformers soundtrack, then.
7: I honestly don't know. It was something with the label. They, the, the, I think, what it was, is Scotty Brothers had the soundtrack deal for the film, and they, you know, they put their own artists on there. You know.
6: Okay, so you were just the touch was just going to be a, another song on the album, and then yeah, and then they picked it out and put it for. the And soundtrack. they also put it on the soundtrack. Yeah,
7: the touch is, of course, has been in a lot of stuff as well, Boogie Nights, and then several TV uses, as well as uh, Transformers games and things, too. Right. So it, uh, it was on Guitar Hero.
6: And... So was the anticipation pretty high for the movie and the soundtrack, you know, when it was coming out?
7: I remember we went to the screening, and uh, all the label guys were there, and, and also the people who worked on the movie. So
6: uh, it was cool. It was like the first time I remember seeing something, like an animated action-type thing on the big screen.
8: Mm -hmm. there hadn't
6: been that much like it 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 seemed kind of like a a new thing at the time I think the movie was very serious and kind of dark and so maybe it wasn't you know it was more for kids at the time but then it was pretty serious and probably too much so for the for the audience it was aimed at I guess I don't know oh
7: that's a a good point I never thought of that yeah Optimus Prime dying was like you know (laughs) that's like more, more traumatic than, than
6: Bambi, you know? (laughs) Yeah. They've got Leonard Nimoy and Orson Welles, you know, like the the big actors in it. (laughs) So that's
7: true. That's, that's really true. Yeah.
6: Yeah. But it seemed like really advanced and it was, you know, it was a, it was a really cool like spectacle to go see it in the theater. Yeah. I guess, especially if you're 12. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And then it had the great soundtrack that went along with it. So it's too bad that it didn't. You know, it seems like at that point, 1986, it definitely had the potential.
7: I know what you're saying. Yeah, it's funny because the soundtrack is, that's what, especially the people who like are your age, are, uh, around that your age, because they they grew up listening to that and playing it over and over, you know, and, and it was like, to them, I don't know, it, it's really cool. It's a, I get those comments a lot, though, you know, how they, that was the soundtrack of my childhood and all this kinds of you know, this kind of thing.
6: I was wondering if there was, was anything planned if the movie and the soundtrack had been a big hit, like, were they going to put all you guys out on tour or something? That would have been really awesome. If Never we, heard anything like that. It yeah. was
7: kind of a, I guess it's just like, whatever you do in the music industry is basically a crap shoot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but no, it's, uh, it was cool. I mean, we recorded the record there and uh, Vince played keyboards on some of my stuff and, it was, it was a good album though. I'm uh, really proud of it still.
6: Yeah. For what it is, it's great. You know, there's this, it's only in America. It seems that you get this cynical kind of attitude where people look back on things that they used to like, and now they pretend like it's not any good and it's just, it doesn't have merit mm. or something like that. And you get this kind of elitist attitude yeah. towards certain I, things. I totally music. agree.
7: Yeah.
6: yeah no, and- it's,
7: it's, it's really true. And, and Okay. I don't want to use the word cheesy, but it it's a little corny having somebody sing some real positive lyrics like that about winning and about, you know, believing in yourself. And, um, I've, I've run across this a lot, that you know, the, the so-called elitists kind of sneer at this sort of thing, and it's gotta be dark and negative to be cool. You know what I mean? It's like, I agree. I mean, the people who love it, just love it. I mean, and I've gotten fan mail over the years that where people, uh, say, you know, stuff like those songs had a huge impact on their on their life, you know, and maybe they were depressed or went through a tough time and some at some point and, you know, they would play those songs and it would like sort of I don't know. It's just very uplifting kind of thing. And I, I'm I'm a positive person and to me that's everything. You know, you when you believe in yourself and you, you make your own reality, you know, I, I really believe that.
6: Yeah, I my favorite kind of music is music that makes you smile and sing along and you know an adrenaline rush and that kind of thing. That's
7: yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's cool stuff.
6: Yeah, so I can remember going to see Boogie Nights, and when <laughs> when Mark Wahlberg starts singing that song, I just it was immediately like, oh, that's the song from Transformers. And I was actually working at a record store at the time, and I went to work like the next day, and I special ordered the soundtrack because i hadn't heard it in so long this was in like the like 98 or you know whenever boogie nights came out and then when the when the tape came in i was buying it from my manager he's like oh i remember this i have the touch on vhs <laughs> and then i was oh, like and then i remember saying to him have you seen boogie Nights? okay dirk, you ready yeah i was born ready nick let's go man dirk diggler demo vocals up you got the touch take seven Excuse me, Rick. Oh. oh. oh.
0: The bass is taken away from
1: the vocal, no, not really. Maybe it sounds
0: balanced
6: to me. It's definitely taken away from my vocal, just to take the bass down and bring up the vocal, okay? Let's do it, Nick. You heard him, but you know, yeah, of course, it kind of felt like, like we we're, were talking about. They were kind of, I don't think they were making fun of the song at Boogie Night. I was thinking it was more about how badly he was singing it, which is what was well,
7: that yeah, it was basically kind of a spoof on the 80s, and yeah, just,
6: you know in general, a spoof. But it's funny because
7: I ran into Wahlberg at the last, uh, well, it was a HasCon, has they call it, uh, the Transformers Convention. This is the first annual HasCon convention back in Providence, like six months ago. And I was backstage, and Wahlberg had just finished doing a panel, and he was coming, walking backstage, and I was standing there, and I, he was walking by, and I said, You got the touch. And he turns around and says, says how did i do in boogie night (laughs) i said it was great anyway a couple minutes later he comes back with his phone and comes up beside me and and film videoing us singing together but after all (laughs) it was was so cool that's awesome (laughs) and he puts it on on his facebook you know and it's like you know hundreds of thousands of views within a couple hours It was like it was a really cool thing he didn't have to do that you know but it's cool. I mean, it's it's a nice claim to fame to have one, even if you're kind of a one one hit, one minor hit wonder, at least you have something, you know, that, and it's a cool thing. I always use it to close the show, you know, wherever I perform and
6: have for, you know, decades now. So you've made a career out of it. You've you've made your living for all this yeah. time from music, right?
7: Well, yeah. mostly, I mean, it's, uh, I do sound editing work for, uh, you know, audio books and, uh okay. for the last 15 years i've been doing that um and i still perform you know so it's kind of a it it enables me to 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 do both things you know and it's it's cool
6: yeah can't complain if you can make a career out of doing something that you you love and enjoy and something that's creative exactly
7: you you got it man
3: I'll break the the sky I'll be revelations Unseen by naked eye
6: Hey Brian. Hey Ernie. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. All right. I'm glad to get you. Oh yeah. You know, I'm glad we could make this time to you know get it together. Yeah. So, you know, I've just been a huge fan of of this soundtrack ever since it came out. <laughs> Instruments of Destruction definitely stands out for sure as being, oh, a, being a really killer that. song on there.
1: Yeah. I, I appreciate that. It's great to hear. You know, every once in a while somebody. uh remembers the song that i run across or you know um, contacts me and it's just just good to hear that kind of thing you know after after 30 some odd years you know people there's some people out there
6: that still remember it (laughs) (laughs) for sure well so i guess my first question is what does nrg stand for because i don't know if i ever knew that or not
1: Well, energy is kind of a play on the name, on the word energy. Okay. Um, And there's been several NRGs since then. I think it was an NRG stadium also. Um, And uh, it it was, uh, it came up, uh, Les's wife, the singer's wife, came up with it. He mentioned it when he came down to rehearsal, and we all thought it was a great name. So that was was the name.
6: All right, so it's not uh, an acronym. It's just, it's like in excess. It's like energy. Yeah, I get it right yeah,
1: cool. yeah, yeah exactly yeah you know and we actually for a time tried to think of something that it could possibly mean but then we said you know what let's <laughs> yeah. let people make up their own meaning for it
6: <laughs> yeah like we are we are sexual perverts or knights in satan service or whatever <laughs> yeah
1: yeah <laughs>
6: yeah so i think it says a wikipedia that the band started in 1979 is that accurate
1: probably i'm not really sure the exact start date but lee and i together were we were together for many years we the drummer lee mangano we were together for many years before we even met Les, or even knew he existed. We used to practice together alone for many years uh, in uh, a rehearsal place in Warwick, Rhode Island. And we would try out different people every now and then. We played with uh, one bass player for a while. Then we were always trying to audition things as for people. And I really knew what I was looking for as far as a vocalist. And when I heard Les, I was just like, oh my God, this is a guy. Yeah, I just... right. You know, yeah, I mean, that's a once-in-a-lifetime voice that you run across, you know, I believe.
6: So were you, you know, did you start out as like a hard rock or heavy metal band, or did you kind of progress to that kind of music, or?
1: My my main influences uh, have always been, uh, well, of course, the Beatles first, and then, you know, Jimi Hendrix, um,
9: Mainly influenced by a
1: lot of guitar players, like Richie Blackmore, uh, Eddie Van Halen, of course. Um, and mainly in the 70s late 70s it was, i would consider it more hard rock than heavy metal um but as the 80s we kind of transitioned into the 80s i think we took more of a metal kind of a turn although it wouldn't be considered metal today but it was definitely not op as you can hear it yeah. wasn't we weren't like death leopard at all we were more like judas priest or Dio or something like that i, I would think you know
6: yeah so were you in the in you know in the early 80s were you were you making demos and trying to get a record deal and playing lots of shows and just, you know, trying to make something happen, probably?
1: Yeah, I've always been into recording, always. Uh, so we were always making demos. I mean, I, I, have, I must have thousands of cassette tapes yeah. that I've been going through <laughs> lately. Um, even at rehearsals, I would record like every rehearsal. But uh, I've always had recording equipment. I used to have a 8-track Tascam um, reel-to-reel and we we did a lot of our own demos in the basement here, and um you know I would always shop the deal we were we were always trying to get a deal and uh we had some success uh early on with a uh label in Belgium called mausoleum records um right, right. And they wanted uh you do you know the label
6: yeah yeah I, yeah, I know that label,
1: yeah, they wanted to sign us, and which is why we you know they wanted they wanted a copy of the master. Uh, of the uh, you know the demo that we sent them, they wanted the master of that so they could release it. And I told my management, said, we don't have a master, uh, I you know recorded that in the basement. It's like you know that's not <laughs> yeah. really a master; but it's a demo. So, and that's why we went into Normandy Sound and recorded uh, the NRG stuff that you're probably familiar with, uh, which was which has instruments of destruction on it. Cause, so we because we had to deliver a master, and when we were in the studio, Phil Green, the engineer, said, "This stuff is too good to go with a with a you know little European label." He says you should try to get a domestic deal. So that's what we tried to do. We started shopping it domestically in the states, and when uh, we ran across uh, the guy who later ended up managing us, Joe Oliveri from uh, he worked with CBS Records with Scotty Brothers for the Transformers guys, and um, that's how we get that. But the song had actually been recorded, uh, I think, maybe a year or two before Scotty Brothers even heard it, and they actually stopped production of the movie because the song fit so well in the movie. They said, this song is perfect for this movie. Right. And, um, you know, so they they, they hold the production of the movie just to put the song in it. And the song was playing in the theater, the movie was playing in the theaters and we hadn't even signed contracts yet. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's all. that's how quickly everything happened, you know? Wow. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, it was pretty cool. It was a great time, you know? It was, you know, one of the best times of my life, really. It was awesome.
6: Yeah. So you had a manager and he was shopping it around and that, and he ended up getting it included on this soundtrack, so were, was the hope that you were going to get a, a record deal with Scotty Brothers and release an NRG album through them?
1: Yeah, we were actually talking to, uh I, I had a few meetings with uh, CBS Records, Um we were talking about getting deals, and my manager wanted to get us the best deal, of course, and he was actually friends with Ben Scotty, Ben Scotty, I guess he used to play with the New York Jets or something. Mm. Uh and, um, my manager was friends with him. So he actually just went to visit his friend, from what I understand. And, um, that's when he played on the tape. Then Scotty, uh, really liked it. And they put him in the movie. But yes, he was shopping us to, you know, a few different labels. But he was employed by CBS as, uh, he worked, worked, actually worked in the accounting department. So he had connections at CBS. So, and uh, Scotty Buzz was a subsidiary of CBS.
6: Right, you know. right. So, so you, that answers one of my questions, which was whether or not the song was written for the movie, obviously it wasn't how, how, how long before that this was that the song actually written?
1: I think we wrote it in about 1982. Uh, So that would make it like four years before the movie, but uh, the song was actually, uh, I'll tell you how the song was written. Yeah. My. Ex-wife and I, who was actually my girlfriend at the time, it was before we were married, we were hanging out with a couple of friends. We used to hang out with my friend Steve and his wife. And the National, National Enquirer was sitting on the table. And, uh, there was an article in the National Enquirer and it was called Instruments of Destruction. So I said, just randomly said, hey, that'd be a great title for a song. And not <laughs> thinking anything of it, you know, I should have really written it down, uh, but I didn't. The next day we went over there to my friend Steve's house and he had written a poem called Instruments of Destruction. And I read it and I said, Man, this is really good. And I said, I want to write a song out of this. So, uh, um, we did. Right right then and there, we just came over my house here, um, and I had a studio in the basement. So we just started working on a song. Me, my friend Steve, who wasn't even a musician, and my ex wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, we just, started weed whacking the words and, you know, making it in making it into a uh you know, a song format, you know, verse chorus kind of a deal because it was it was really just a poem and Steve had written it. So, um we uh you know made it into the song format. I ended up recording it. I was awake for like two or three days with no sleep. I mean, which was very common for me at that time. My girlfriend would bring me food in the basement when I'd be down there just recording for days. Um and, uh, you know, after a couple of days, the song was, I wouldn't say complete because the band hadn't played it yet. And that version of the band wasn't even together yet. We hadn't even left at that time. Um, but, uh, then I did the vocals on the original version. And, uh, you know, it was, if you listen to it today, it's actually pretty terrible.
6: <laughs> but, uh, but that's how it was born. You know. um, wow, that's great. <laughs> I love it.
9: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
6: And that, that that makes it even cooler as a song that it was written, like, in 82, you know, because so much changed just in those years it, in a genre like heavy metal that, you know, something in 82 is yeah. much cooler than in 86, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah. It, it, um, I remember when NRG first started, uh, we uh, did a uh, Battle of the Bands at Rhode Island College. We got a really bad review because we were, you know, <laughs> playing what i guess you could consider back then was heavy metal and at the time heavy heavy metal was not really very popular when we, you know right. at the beginning of the 80s and um you know we got a really bad review I actually still have that review somewhere i kept it and uh you know they kind of slammed us but we actually won the battle of the day
6: <laughs> well, that, well there you go yeah that's that's the difference yeah. between the uh, rock journalists and the fans right that's always been yeah. that way especially with heavy metal that's how it, the critics hate it. The fans love it. Yep, there you go. <laughs>
1: right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's why you know younger people at the time liked it so much because it was you know pretty much anti-establishment. You know.
6: And I bet you opened for a lot of cool bands probably when you were. When yeah, you were... we did. I was, I wish I could remember the complete
1: list, but uh, off the top of my head, I mean, I remember opening for Blue Oyster Cult, Wendy O. Williams, The Plasmatics. God, who else? Extreme, a lot. We used to play with Extreme quite often. Oh. Cool. Um, because they're from boston right and we're, you know we're from and so mm-hmm. we sprayed them a lot jeez i wish i could remember who else
6: there's quite a few you probably knew extreme yeah. when they were called the dream right
1: uh actually i didn't but i knew nuno the guitar player when he was in a band called uh sinful when he was 15 years old right. and i remember walking up to him when he was 15 years old I just, kid, I'm going to shake your hand right now because someday I'm not even going to be able to get near you. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, he was that good when he was 15 years old. He was just amazing. Yeah, prodigy, kid. right? And, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. It was unbelievable. It was It was definitely very clear that he would be successful,
6: you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So after the soundtrack comes out, you probably thought, wow, this could be our big break. And then the movie just kind of tanks and the soundtrack just doesn't go anywhere. Right. Was that kind of how it worked?
1: Well, yeah, that's exactly what
5: happened. Yeah.
6: And
1: uh, yeah, I, I really thought I thought it was the first of many things that right. were going to happen. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Field of Dreams. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a uh, clip in there where Moonlight Graham talks about he played played one inning in the major leagues. And he said at the time, I thought it was going to be the first of many. And he says it turned out that was the only day.
4: It was like having this close to your dreams and then watch them brush past you like a stranger in a crowd. At the time, you don't think much of it.
8: You know, we just don't
4: recognize the most significant moments of our lives while they're happening. Back then, I thought, well, there'll be other days. I didn't realize that that was the only day.
1: And that's kind of the way I feel about what happened with, you know, NRG and the the soundtrack. it just seemed like it was it was gonna roll into something really big, and um, it just never did. The movie tanked at the box office, yeah. but later it became successful as a cult kind of a thing. Right. And and I didn't even know it. Like I, I didn't know it, but like when the internet first started getting popular, I somehow ran across something about the Transformers soundtrack and instruments of destruction and. You know, I was like, wow, people actually are interested in this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, I, had, I hadn't forgotten about it, but, it just, you know, I just thought nobody cared. And, you know, there's, there's a small segment of people out there that really still care about the Transformers, you know, and it's really cool. And I think, too, that, you know, because it was on every Saturday, the cartoon was on every Saturday, you know, I guess paying to go see a movie that's on every Saturday isn't, you know, such yeah, a big thing, I guess. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I I never even saw the Transformers before the movie came <laughs> out. I didn't know, right. you know. Right. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I'm a big fan now just because, you know, <laughs> yeah. because of the movie. But yeah. uh, you know, at the time I didn't know anything about it really, and I I bet the other bands probably say the th- same thing too.
6: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, everybody. Yeah, that's kind of the the theme is that everybody was at some point was surprised to find out that people still cared <laughs> about the soundtrack. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's just because it's so good. Like anybody who likes this kind of music, you know, this is really a, a gem, like a lost gem, you know, that but I always knew about it, you know, ever since it first came out. But you know, it really, the songs are just really, it's really high quality, fun stuff for this kind of music, you know, so. And you saw it in the theater
1: when you when you were 12, you said?
6: Yeah, yeah. And probably we got the soundtrack probably just because we loved the songs in the movie. And what did you think when Optim-
1: Optimus Prime died
6: <laughs> when you were 12? <laughs> yeah, I don't remember. But yeah, that's what I mean about how dark the film was. It was, it probably needed a different plot <laughs> to be more of a hit. I don't know.
1: Like I said, I didn't know much about The Transformers. I didn't know that it wasn't anything other than it was on Saturday. You know, I just, we saw it at a preview in New York City. Uh, we were invited to, uh, it was just a, uh, it was a preview and all the, a lot of the actors, voice actors were there and that kind of thing. And, you know, it was just, it was just for us. It was private showing. You know, it was pretty cool. You know, we had a party afterwards. Robert Stack was there and, you know, a lot of, a lot of the actors, the voice actors from the movie were there. And we had a party. I think it was at Studio Fifty Four at the time in New York. Wow.
6: Yeah, right. Yeah. Was, so that's because cool. Instruments of Destruction. It seems like it was written for the movie. It's so perfect, you know, for the vibe of the soundtrack well, and, and for the film. That's what
1: they. That's why they. That's why they. You know, halted the production of the movie because yeah. this is
6: perfect for this movie.
1: I mean, you know. I mean, it really does sound like it was written for the movie, you know. I tried to get it in uh, one of the uh, Michael Bay, actually a couple of the Michael Bay versions. I didn't have success at getting it to that point. I uh, re-recorded it last year with uh, Doug Aldrich, who used to play in Lion. Right. Um, and they're on, the, they're on the original soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, he he played guitar on it. And I had Mark Bold singing on it. And he used to sing for Inver Nounsteen. Mm-hmm. And Larry uh, Aberman plays drums, and he played drums on the uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan um, Family Style album. And he started Dave Lee Roth and the Cult and a bunch of other people. And I, I released that last year, and I tried to get that on the 30th anniversary uh, release of uh, uh, the 30th anniversary DVD release. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah. But it was the 30th anniversary of the movie, and they were releasing a special Blu ray DVD. And i tried to get it on there but i didn't reach the deadline in time so i didn't get it on there but they were interested in putting it on there and it uh, just didn't happen mm. unfortunately
6: i love the story of how you said that title and your friend was so inspired by it that he writes a poem and then you were so inspired by what he had written that you just stay up for two days making the song oh, yeah. it's a really great uh story of how the song came to be uh, it's great
1: you know, and that, was, that wasn't that was the song that we thought was going to do it for us, you know, do anything for us. We thought it was going to be the song Come and Get It. I don't know if you've heard that one. But when we would play live, that was the song that got everybody going. Yeah. And we would get local airplay with that song quite a bit. On um, uh, WHJY, used to play it all the time, and they used to have a – a show with uh, Mike Gonzalez, uh, Doctor Metal, who actually died in the uh, station fire.
6: Right. Um, the Station Night nightclub fire. Oh wow! Yeah, you're from Rhode Island, Island. Right. right? Wow. Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I live. I live about a mile away from the station.
6: Wow. Um, so yeah, you must have played they, there you know, a million times.
1: Yeah, I played there. I did sound there. I hung out there. All my friends were always there. we always there. You know, it's just
6: you know, wow. Very
1: unfortunate thing. man. <laughs> And I still can't believe it. I was actually living in Nashville when it happened.
9: Oh, okay. And
1: uh, I was at a party that night, and um, I came home about 4 or 5 in the morning, and there was a message on my answering machine. That that was before cell phones, uh, before I had one
5: anyway. Yeah.
1: There was a message on the machine, and my friend just said, the station's on fire. And um, so I was like, wow, I wonder if anything's on television. So I turned on the TV, and it was on every channel, every single channel. And I was living in Nashville, <laughs> right. so it wasn't that like I was local, but every single channel had that fire, and I was like, oh my God, and, uh, you know, so I called, of called my mom and dad right away, and my father answered the phone, and he never answers the phone, you know, <laughs> ever, ever doesn't answer the phone, and he like, yeah, your mother's been up all night crying, and, um, you know, it's, it's just really, really sad. Oh, horrible, you know. yeah.
6: Wow! But, I mean, I didn't, I
1: didn't mean to bring things down. I'm sorry.
6: But, <laughs> no, I mean that. That's yeah. That, I had you know, I had not made that connection, but yeah, obviously that was just your whole music scene there, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. God, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, it was so close to my house; I could walk there. Yeah. You know?
6: but, so so after the soundtrack, how long did you guys stick it out and 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 try to? Keep trying to get a record deal and, and... not long no uh,
1: <laughs> not long at all uh you know, only
6: a few months really really um, yeah
1: yeah you know there was in every band uh there's always like kind of internal pressures it's like you're being married to you know four people are married together yeah, and, yeah. you know and because it's such a creative environment i think it makes tensions run very high because you're really dealing with your deep emotions when you're dealing with music, you know, so it's really hard for four people to make things work. There was definitely some personality conflicts in the band. And, um, unfortunately they took their toll on us, you know, and, and it just wouldn't stay together long after, you know, which is very unfortunate. I, I had hoped that we would stay together at least long enough to have some kind of success. Because I always knew that we could do it, and there was never a doubt in my mind.
9: Yeah. Especially
1: when I first heard Les's voice, I was like, "That that guy, you know, that's." And <laughs> you haven't even heard his best stuff, <laughs>
6: you know what I mean? That guy
1: could really sing,
6: right? Um, right.
1: And you know, I knew he was a star. I just knew it. You know, I think we uh, we disbanded way too soon. I think it. Uh, I think we could have had some kind of success. I mean, we wouldn't have been the Beatles, I'm sure, but we were certainly good enough to um have some kind of success, I, I believe, you
6: know. Was part of it the letdown of the soundtrack not not being a a big seller that you think contributed to that or
1: we, we at that point we were happy to to have that going on and we did have other things that were on the horizon. Like I said, we were actually talking with record labels and stuff so there are things to look forward to in the future so i think that the soundtrack would have just been a stepping stone to the next step yeah i um you know i really believe that we definitely would have had some success
4: Hey, Brian, there you are. Hey, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing good. Just uh, working hard. Yeah. Do you, get, you
6: Do you get sick of talking about the Transformers soundtrack?
4: Oh boy, there's a great question. And nobody ever asked me that question before. <laughs> nah, no, you know what? I don't actually because I, I can't believe how good it's been to me after all these years.
6: Yeah, there's how many Transformers conventions are there? Is that a pretty common thing?
4: Well, the only one that I've been to is BotCon, but I know there are several others, uh, and I think there are several even in Europe. And uh, I think I was invited to one in England at one point, Um, and I I don't think they could work it out, but uh, yeah, there's several. It's amazing to me.
6: Wow, yeah, that's that's interesting. I didn't really know that there was that much of a, that Transformers had some kind of almost like a Star Trek or Star Wars (laughs) type fan base going on.
4: It's pretty amazing. I mean, when I first uh, went to my first Botcon in 1997, it was, you know, 11 years after the movie came out. And the uh, organizer of that convention said, "You're, you probably don't realize how many fans you have uh, for your score for that movie." I said, "I said it's it's 11 years later. The movie was in and out of the theaters and." 2 weeks and I was the last I heard of it he says oh no it's got a big big cult following and I I went there and it was like you know I was a big celebrity and it was just it was uh very otherworldly but it was extremely nice
6: yeah 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 it must be crazy to find something like that out that you didn't really
4: even know no i mean you're dropped into this world where you didn't know there was any attention being given to the subject and all of a sudden you know, there's lines going around the block for uh, fans coming into the convention and coming in to get autographs and pictures taken and all that stuff. It was, it's, it's very strange, but just, uh, you know, I've been to like five or six since then. And uh, they've always been so welcoming to, to me and to Stan. And, and, you know, like I said, we we did this over 30 years ago, well over 30, two, you know, 32 years ago.
6: So the soundtrack that Scotty Brothers put out, did you get involved... Because of your association with them through Rocky Four, or how did you get involved with the Transformers, the movie?
4: It was through Rocky Four. They, uh, producers of Transformers came to me and they had listened to the Rocky Four music and watched the movie and said, uh, you know, I know it's two different genres, but we really think your musical style would be great for our movie, even though it's not, you know, a live action, you know, Rocky type movie, but, um, Would you be willing to submit a demo? And I put a demo together based on some information they gave me. And I don't know if you're familiar with that story. There's a piece that I submitted called Legacy. And it had like a a hero and villain theme and some battle music and some peace music at the end of the piece. Um, And and I, I submitted that. As a demo to Transformers, and it got me the job. But oddly enough, I didn't end up using any of the music from that piece in the movie. But uh, yeah, that's how they they came to me as a result of hearing my score to Rocky IV.
6: And so, do you do they give you a copy of the movie somehow, and you write this? You watch the film and are inspired to write the music? Is that how that well, works?
4: I tell you what, Brian, I wish it was that case. I, I was given what they call storyboards okay. and to write. And, you know, when they gave it to me, they said, well, you've worked with storyboards before. And I said, oh, yeah, well, I had never worked with storyboards. (laughs) And I I really never want to again, because it's just it doesn't really inspire you. I mean, somehow I found the inspiration, um, but I think I judged it more on what they were telling me rather than the actual storyboards. But writing to the timing of storyboards is very difficult. And. What the process was for that movie is I wrote the music as best I could, um, gave it to uh, my co-producer, Ed Frugier, who was also the music editor or the assistant music editor on the project. And since Ed knew my music so well, between the time I wrote the music and they actually filmed, you know, put the film together, they had changed quite a lot from the storyboards. So... Consequently, my music had to change, and Ed was the guy that made sure that all the musical changes were were musical rather than, you know, jarring. And uh, I credit Ed with a lot of the the quality of the end result because they had to cut my music up quite a bit to make it fit. Uh, yeah, I wish I would. I didn't have any footage to look at. It was just the storyboards.
6: Yeah, that must have been frustrating. And then if they wanna if they wanna sync your music up to the film then they have to edit it and piece it together
4: yeah wow and i mean to a certain degree it's nice to have you know to be the originator of the of the, you know the process in other words i'll write the music as best i can to the storyboards then they have to cut their film together but it didn't exactly work out like that you know it it it, it wasn't like they took a piece of music in its entirety and animated to that i wish it had been, you know, like um, like they did with Robin Williams in, in uh, what was it, Aladdin. You know, they took his dialogue and they drew around it. It wasn't like that with Transformers. They, uh, they did it to a certain degree, but now they cut up the music a lot. They had to, and, and uh, to to meet the final film. I wish I would have had, you know, when I went to see the movie, I thought, boy, I would have written it so differently if I had known they were going to cut it like that. But. You know, it wasn't, we didn't have the time for that. I had six weeks to do almost 70 minutes of Underscore. Uh, and that means write it and record it and and master it and get it into them. So we were flying and, uh, you know, I'm, I am still to this day amazed that the music in its original form has gotten so much attention because uh, it didn't start out like that. But thank God it ended up like that.
6: You know, I think it was just, it's a, it was a very impressive film to see in the movie theater at the time. And definitely I think the score had had a lot to do with that because it helped with the atmosphere and just the, uh, the way that the movie affected you, you know?
4: Yeah. Well, that's what fans keep saying. And uh, I think I, you know, I saw the movie and I mean, I, I, it, I won't say it was just a job to me cause I did my absolute best. But when I saw the movie, I had two, two sources of disappointment number 1 and this is every composer goes through this i was a little disappointed in how f- far down they mixed the music and how the sound effects were featured much more in most cases but that's that's typical you know you you kind of expect that but the second thing was you know i i was upset with how the music even even with ed doing the best he could it was just not the same as what i handed in and i was disappointed so i won't say i instantly forgot about it but it did kind of go go back in the corner of my mind very quickly and uh it took 11 years before it would surface again from you know as a result of a call from the botcon organizer and and saying you have a fan base the movie has a big fan base a big cult following and please come to this convention. And that's when I saw for the first time, wow, this thing really has taken on a life of its own.
6: Yeah, I guess you had a similar, like I talked to Jerry Best, who was in the band Lion. And, you know, they got tasked with recording the Transformers theme song. Yeah. <clears throat> and somehow they managed to do a seri- a version of it that's really good and you can take it seriously. And so that you have to, you probably had some of the same issues with You know it's a it's a cartoon about robots yeah and you but you also want to take your music seriously so you have to figure out a way to feel good about what you do with this situation that you're in so
4: absolutely and and it was a challenge um one thing i will give credit to the producers uh, i never met the director by the way um never worked with him. Uh, he didn't, you know, I think it was the producers in that situation that were the main communication for me. And they pretty much left me alone. Uh, I will give them credit for that. They they said, here's the storyboards. We love your music to Rocky Four, Write some music like that. And, you know, let us know when you're done. So they weren't very hands-on with me, and I liked that. They gave me the creative freedom to do what I want to do. It was just I wish that the end result in the picture ended up being a little bit more musical for me but you know what it in the end it doesn't seem to matter because the fans they knew every note of every piece of music the way it was in the film and they supported the original version of the music when it came out you know uh, they, they loved the score um i mean enough that a record company had to felt that they had a market to put a record out there that just has the score to it. So, you know, that really is all that matters. The fans are what drives this thing, and and they love the stuff. So, you know, that was it. That was great.
6: Now, what about the song Dare? Because I I like every song on this soundtrack. That's what makes it so so great to listen to is that all the songs are good, but Dare oh. is my favorite. Oh, thank you. did you come to write that
4: song you know if memory serves they came to us and said um, you know we have all these other songs we need one more song one more vocal song and I know you're this the instrumental score composer but do you write vocal songs I said I absolutely do and they actually uh, let me go back and, and correct that they knew that I wrote vocal songs because I had hearts on fire in Rocky IV And they said, would you you consider writing a vocal song for Transformers? I said, absolutely. And I came up with the music to that fairly quickly, again, because I had to do everything quickly in this thing. Uh, And it was kind of the middle of the process. I had worked with Scotty Brothers Records for Staying Alive, and uh, that was in 1983. So I had a connection with them. I was recording the music in their studio, and of course, one of their artists was stan bush so i wrote this song and they chose stan to sing it it just worked out that the range i was writing to was uh, was perfect for stan and he killed it you know obviously just i loved his performance on it and uh we submitted it uh, my friend scott shelley was the guitar player on a lot of my score stuff starting back with staying alive and he worked on all rocky four with me and he did all the transformer stuff with me well, he's a lyricist as well. So I said, Scott, do you want to, you know, give it a go and write the lyrics to this? And, and he came out with a lyric, I think, in a day. And we gave it to Stan. Uh, a guy named Richie Wise at Scotty Brothers produced Stan's vocals on the song because they had worked together so much and I had never worked with Stan before. So we basically gave them the instrumental track that we put together. And um, Stan put his vocals on and, and the film production uh, and the record company loved it.
6: And so you say that that Scott wrote the lyrics. Did, was that to a melody that you that you wrote, or did he come yeah. up with the melody?
4: Yeah, uh, no, I came up with the melody, and Scott came up with all the words. Okay. Yeah.
6: Yeah, that's such a great melody. It's such a great song. I really love it. And yes, you know, S- Stan did a great job too.
4: He did a wonderful job.
7: Dare was a song I didn't write, but it was on the soundtrack uh, as well, and they got me to sing it.
6: Yeah, so Dare was written by Vince DiCola. That's a great song, Dare. Did Vince DiCola write everything, the lyrics and everything for that?
7: No, um, he co-wrote it with Scott Shelley. Oh, who's Scott Shelley? Honestly, I don't, I mean, I know him, but I don't know what else he did. Okay. Um, He's living in, like, in Australia or something, or New Zealand somewhere. But um, we've done a few deals last year. There were, like, three different placements of the song Dare because I re-recorded it, you know, and uh, so I own a master of Dare that sounds really close to the original. So it was in this, what do you call it, uh, hockey movie that came out last year.
6: Yeah, and I I read that Dare is in Glow the on Netflix.
7: Yeah, yeah, ladies wrestling thing from the yeah. 80s with yeah. all the, yeah. Yeah, I got a write-up in... uh Hollywood reporter on that oh I think it was anyway it was a, it was a nice article a couple like three That well, it was over the
6: summer actually so for dare did they just have the music track like completely done and then they just had you come in and and sing it or did you have any part in the melody or like arranging it or anything
4: no no
7: no I didn't I didn't have anything to do with writing it or what or whatever yeah I was basically just hired a singer
4: and I'll tell a quick story about that song when I was at my first Transformers Convention in Rochester in 1997, Rochester, New York. Uh, you know, in the line of people that were coming up to talk to us, one of the one of the fans took me aside and he said, you know, I have to tell you that this song, Dare, saved my life. And I said, how so? He was preparing to take his own life. And he said he put the song, that particular song, on, the, you know, I don't know if it was a, it wasn't a CD at the time, whatever it was, cassette or... He said, it gave me so much hope that I changed my mind. And I said, you know what? Of all the people that are here and of all the compliments I've been receiving, that is the ultimate. And it was amazing to hear that, that the power of music is that strong.
6: Yeah, that that must be a really great thing to hear from somebody. So when you wrote that song, were you trying to write a certain kind of song? Um, Did you have a style in mind or something that fit in with the other songs that were going to be on the soundtrack? Or is that just what you wrote.
4: Well, you know, at that time I wasn't really that familiar with the rest of the songs. I was so I was concentrating so much on the instrumental score. I didn't even have time to hear the other music as it was coming in. And they asked me to write a heroic song. That's basically all the direction that they gave me. They may have at that point have had some footage to show me of where the song was going to go in the movie. Okay. Uh, I'm I'm recalling that that might be the case and that may have helped inspire this the direction of the song but no i wasn't given much direction and i wasn't familiar with the other material in the movie at that point
6: that's amazing because it fits in so well um, yeah we lucked
4: out we really did luck yeah. out.
6: <laughs> yeah the pretty much well the dare is very similar in style to the touch i would say and then a lot of the other songs are more like a pop metal but the the aor or pop metal it all fits together so well i think that's why the soundtrack is so much fun to listen to and then yep. the the instrumental pieces that are interspersed on the soundtrack it yeah it's just the listening to it as one album it's really great <laughs> but it, i guess it's only for a certain kind of music fan i mean this is the kind of music that i still love that i've loved you know since i was a kid so it it works for me. Some people wouldn't take it seriously or whatever, but. Uh...
4: Well, I'll tell you something. I was just um, in January, I, I appeared at an event back east called MAGFest and Music and Games Festival, it stands for. And uh, there were 20,000 people at this convention, much larger than any of the Transformers conventions I've been to. And I was asked to perform about a half hour of score music, of my music at this event. And I thought. Even when I got there, I said to to that organizer, I said, are these people really going to know who I am and and the music? I mean, this isn't a Transformers convention. This is a video game convention, and I've only had a couple of scores of video game music so far. And they said, you'll be surprised at at not only the number of fans that will be here, but the number of composers that are here that have uh, cited you as one of their biggest inspira- sources of inspiration, and I was very knocked out to see when I came on the stage uh, January 6th, I believe it was, there were a lot of people in the audience that were very familiar with my music, and not just Transformers, but Rocky Four. even though neither one of those was a video game. Of course, there were video games made of Transformers. I don't know if there was ever a video game made of Rocky Four, to be honest with you, but there were a lot of fans there and they were very enthusiastic and they knew every piece of music that uh, that i had done almost note for note and it was a great concert it was a great event but again here it is how long after the original event uh, of transformers that there are still a big number of fans out there that love this kind of music and and i was also pleasantly surprised to hear there were 40 bands at this event Um, Apparently 400 bands a year vie for position in this thing and they pick 40 bands every year and I got, it's, it's like three days around the clock and I got a chance to go into the concert room and hear some of the other bands and it's that same kind of music and people are loving it to this day. So, you know, if I needed any validation of that, that event certainly showed me that there's still a great market out there for that kind of music.
6: Yeah. It's just about taste. And, uh, I mean, I guess there's a lot of nostalgia that goes into it too for a lot of people. Yeah, sure. So, so you didn't have anything to do with any of the other songs that ended up on the soundtrack for choosing them or anything like that?
4: No, had nothing to do with them. And again, I hadn't heard them until I didn't hear them until they were done and, and actually on the soundtrack. Right. That's when I have a chance to hear the other music for the first time. Did you work with Richie Wise? I uh, did. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've worked with Richie on projects before, the, before Transformers, and uh, he was so perfect for doing what he did on Dare because he and Stan worked so well together, and they had a uh, group of background singers that they were used to working with. In fact, I went on to work with one of those people, named, a guy named Gary Falcone, who actually s- sang the demo uh, to Dare to get it to Stan and Gary was one of the background vocals, and Richie was excellent with working with Stan on lead vocals and arranging background vocals, and he knew just what to do. So although we didn't work in the room together, um, we talked about uh, you know the direction, and there wasn't really much to talk about. Richie got it right away, and, and he said, Okay, I got it, and Stan's got it, and give us the tape when you're done. Uh, give us the master tape, and we'll put everything on it. And they did, and it ended up being perfect. Um,
6: yeah, yeah. Richie Wise is a big deal to me because he co-produced the first two Kiss albums. Who? That's uh, right. Were like my gateway <laughs> into music obsession. That's so. right.
4: <laughs> yeah, Richie. Richie's a great guy, and a, and a, a great lover of music. And always has been very passionate and uh, very musical, very talented guy.
6: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Vince, for talking to me. I really appreciate it.
4: Thank you, Brian. It was uh, nice to meet you, at least on Skype. Yeah, (laughs)
6: yeah. you've ever been interviewed about the Transformers soundtrack before, but it's uh, kind of what uh, I...
8: Not that specifically.
6: Yeah, right. Well, there's a lot of... For me, there's a lot of interesting details that go into it, um, especially the name change, which, to me, it seems like they must have wanted you to have a more family-friendly band name. Is Was that the reason that you went by Spectre General?
8: Uh, that's exactly correct. Yeah. <laughs> um, nowadays, that would not seem like much of a... Problem. and no. a name like pickaxe, <laughs> yeah. they thought it was the movie was for you know directed at a younger audience, and that that name was a little too raunchy for them. They gave us a bunch of ones that we could choose from, and that was the closest thing we could tolerate. <laughs> it's not a bad name. I don't know
6: what it, the hell it means, but uh, it's not it's not terrible. <laughs> Do you remember no. any of the other names that were on the list?
8: Uh, I don't actually. Uh, I try not to remember those. Th- that.
6: <laughs> that must have been a real bummer if you were hoping, because for a band that's maybe getting some exposure on something like this, and then you're not even going by your actual band name.
8: Yeah, it was quite a surprise to us. Yeah. Um, the album was released in Canada under the soundtrack came out in Canada with the name Kick Oh, really? Yeah, so, you know, we were in Canada and it didn't impact us that much, but... We thought it was even more confusing that there's two different bad names on two different uh, versions of the album.
6: Yeah, I guess the Canadian kids uh, could handle Kick-Ax more than the American kids. They were a little more accepting. (laughs) Was there some kind of a connection between Scotty Brothers and Pasha Records that led to you being involved with the soundtrack?
8: I believe with uh, Spencer Proffer and Pasha was was, uh, connected with them and i think he organized most of the music for the soundtrack
6: oh really okay i wonder why it was on scotty brothers instead of pasha they must have
8: just had some kind of agreement huh um yeah that happens all the time yeah right up the creek was a very similar thing it wasn't on pasha but spencer did most of the arranging of of getting the groups together and recording it
6: right right yeah and you were on up the creek with and that's also the connection to Randy Bishop, who's also involved with the Transformers soundtrack, right? That's right, yeah. So I guess Spencer just brought this opportunity to the band to put you on this soundtrack?
8: It worked a little differently than that. Um, The song Hunger that's on the soundtrack was actually one of four songs that we wrote for Black Sabbath when they were going to uh, put an album together with Ian Gillen at the time. They they didn't do that album, so we had these four songs in the can. Uh, one of them went to uh, King Cobra. Actually, both of those went – two of them went to King Cobra. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Oh, yeah. One of them was done by a band out of L.A. that I'm under contract not to say who it was because they bought the song outright. Oh, interesting. Right. And then um, – we came along and we still owned the hunger and, and the other song. So we, uh, Spencer said, let's put that on this soundtrack and then we'll do the other song with, uh, Randy Bishop and we'll put that one together as well.
6: Right. So, wow. So would that have been like a, a album after born again, a second Ian Gillen, black Sabbath album that you were writing songs for?
8: I believe so. The time frame I'm not quite sure of, uh, what happened then. And, uh, was also during a fairly crazy time when just after we finished recording our first album not even finished recording it yet we were still taking a break actually between uh sessions and they gave us the studio for the weekend and we wrote those four songs uh during that weekend and and put them down i believe it would have been 82 83
6: and all four songs like the 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 project you were working on was writing for Black Sabbath that was like wh- how you approached it
8: yeah, they were going to do this album with Spencer and Pasha, and then it didn't happen. Oh, wow. That's
6: that's very interesting. That's cool. Yeah, because yeah, listening to Vices, it doesn't seem like Hunger would have really fit, on, or even uh, Welcome to the Club. It seems like, so you kind of were writing not with kickaxe in mind, but just more with a, um, maybe you yeah, were... Just um, a little harder edge. And, yeah,
8: right. Um, you know, a little more of a flat fifth kind of thing. and.
6: Yeah, so I, I. Yeah. So that's one thing I really wanted to ask you about is why King Cobra uh, used the song instead of you guys, because those uh, Ready to Strike and Welcome to the Club both came out in 85.
8: We were assuming we were going to use, actually going to use Hunger and uh, one or two other songs, uh, another song called Peace of the Rock, which was one of those as well. Right, yeah, and that's okay.
6: Yeah, that's on Ready to Strike too, right.
8: So they took both of those. Uh, unbeknownst to us at the time. Oh, <laughs> it was it was something we found out when we came to record our second album and thought we had two songs already to go. Oh, okay. And then they, we were told that we didn't.
6: So was that Spencer uh, Spencer Proffer that put the yes. songs with them? Yeah.
8: He he uh, controlled uh, a lot of things that without letting us know sometimes. Right.
6: Yeah, he's an interesting character. Just because of, you know, growing up and, and liking all these bands and seeing his name on so many records and not really knowing anything about him.
8: Yeah, he's a great guy, you know, just basically, but he was, you know, very much, uh, you know, a a unilateral uh, controller on all the groups he worked with. He just sort of assumed that he had their best intentions or somebody's best intentions. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah.
6: Pasha's Best Intentions. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so that the song, nothing's going to stand in our way was, was on the Savage Streets soundtrack, I think in 83 and Randy Bishop wrote it and produced it and John Farnham, the Australian singer uh, recorded it for that. And then he also produced it, Produced your version of it for Transformers. Right.
8: That's true. He also uh, was a producer on welcome to the club. Right.
6: So he was probably, he must have been working with Spencer, and that's how you linked up with him?
8: Yeah, yeah, he, um, Spencer was initially going to uh, do most of the pre-production and recording of uh, Welcome to the Club, but he had another, um, another project that was happening at the same time, and we didn't want to delay ours, and so he'd been working a lot with Randy, and we talked with Randy over the phone, we had already worked with him on, on Nothing's Gonna Stand in Our Way, and. Randy flew up to Canada, and we did that in uh, Metalworks in Triumph Studio in Toronto with Randy Bishop,
6: okay, so you recorded the Transformers songs before you recorded um welcome to the club, yeah, okay, but then it came out a year later, so that was uh in the works for a long time, huh
8: yeah, yeah it was it was later when we were just uh working on rock the world that we were told they were going to use use them on that soundtrack, and we needed a different name
6: okay so when you recorded them so when you recorded the the hunger and nothing's going to stand in our way was it for the transformer soundtrack or just to record them
8: uh i believe it was two separate occurrences the hunger was definitely not for that it was recorded before that and nothing's going to stand in our way was something that we had recorded but didn't go on the album and we just on uh, our first album, or on Welcome to the Club, I think. And so we, um, we did some tweaking of that and used that. But it was originally, I I believe, you know, I'm not 100% sure, because some some of those times are a little foggy, but Mm -hmm. I believe we recorded that along with um, a couple other songs that didn't make it onto Welcome to the Club.
6: Interesting. So, so you, you just had these songs in the can, and then uh Spencer ended up using them for the soundtrack. Yeah. Did you just have no say in that? Like he just says, "Hey, we're putting these songs in the soundtrack and you're called Spectre General and there's really nothing you don't have any say in it?"
8: <laughs> well, they gave like I said they gave us a list of names. Yeah. So that's that's as much say as we had in. <laughs> so the they airport. were using
6: them, they were using them whether you
8: liked it or not. Well, we we didn't have any problem with that. You yeah. know, we thought it was kind of cool to be on there, so Right. There was, there was no uh resistance to that it was uh we knew that uh nothing's going to stand in our way it wasn't actually finished and um you know if if you listen to the song especially if we listen to it we can point out the parts where we we haven't actually done the background vocals on that one there that part <laughs> It's in every other part of the song
6: oh interesting. yeah right so were, the, were they more even like demos
8: i would call them uh unfinished anyway right. they weren't demos they were they were intended to be full recordings but they were never finished up because you know we we weren't there when they actually decided to use them they would have done some additional mixing obviously and and maybe even thrown in some some material you know randy might have done something but for the most part they were sort of rough cut
6: well they're great i mean i they're they're great songs and the the versions on the soundtrack are great so
8: yeah we listen to them back now You know they sound great they they, and some in some ways the rawness of it is better than what maybe would have happened if they would have polished them up right
6: i you know i i had this soundtrack when it first came out when i was a kid and i don't know when i found out that it was kick that specter general was actually kick but um it was so interesting to discover that because you know Mm -hmm. it was a long time where i had no idea i knew i knew who kick was but i didn't know it was the same band that was on transformers so I guess if the movie had been a big hit and the soundtrack had been a big hit, that would have been really unfortunate, but since it didn't really get that much attention, it ended up not being that big of a deal, right? Yeah. But I can it, only imagine if it was a huge hit, and then you're on there as this other name, that would have really sucked.
8: It would have. Yeah. But, you know, at the time, like I said, we only had the only choice we had was which of these other names do you want to use? Right.
6: Now, that idea that you sold that other song to that band that you can't you can't say who the band is uh, that's pretty fascinating too. Did that go on a lot where so then so when they buy it from you, that means they can say they wrote it Oh, yeah, they wow. did say they wrote it. Wow, and did that happen a lot in the eighties That was the only time it happened
8: to us yeah, only for you, but you know i I have, I have no idea. I think it was just that certain artists did not want to uh credit other artists with writing songs on their album. Right. Right. And so they would just go and outright buy it, which is, you know, actually not, you know, ethical, but it was just something that we didn't know, you know, we're just coming in, doing our first album and, um, we've got these songs and not all of a sudden they're not being used uh, for the project. We wrote them for, and then Spencer was doing this next band in Pasha. They heard the uh, demos and they wanted the song. And they did use it. And uh you know, the the big tall singer uh from LA who uh saw him later in the Rainbow Bar and Grill said he still thought our version was better, was disappointed in his version.
6: And so um so when you do something like that you sign something that says you can like a non disclosure agreement or something that's so that you, yeah. yeah. Wow, that's cool. So you so that's so you said there were four songs And there was hunger and peace of the rock and this song and then there was a fourth one was that used anywhere i don't remember if you said
8: yeah there was a fourth song but i don't think it was used no i don't think it was close enough close enough to being finished
6: so uh yeah i guess i don't know what else do you have any other memories or stories of of the soundtrack or
8: it's an interesting thing for sure that it's still hanging around and people still remember it yeah there's a some Canadian band in Toronto called Cybertronic Spree. I don't know if you know who they are. Not a pretty small time, but they do. Uh, they dress up like uh, Transformers and do all, all the songs off of that album.
6: Oh, really? Wow! Yeah. And uh, actually, it's not too bad. Yeah. Well, that's the thing about that album is every song is good.
8: Yeah, we still play uh, "Hunger" on uh, our live shows.
6: guess um being on a soundtrack i mean the whole purpose of that is just trying to get your name out there right and then so then when you're specter general (laughs) that doesn't that doesn't uh, really help but no it doesn't
8: (laughs) (laughs) we weren't sure what we were going to do if something more happened or if they wanted more
6: right yeah what if it if it had been like a massive hit would you have just changed your name to specter general and made a record as that (laughs)
8: I, I'm not sure we probably would have just you know come on said no this is our name you know, but I, I don't know how much um, control we would have had still at that point you know we didn't really wrestle back control until a few years later
6: yeah maybe Spencer would have said hey your next record your specter general at least in the States <laughs>
8: yeah he might have right I'm not sure what would have happened
6: okay well um thanks a lot for talking to me Larry um... Uh, No problem,
8: Brian.
5: because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's Upgraded Everyday Earbuds,
6: Hi Jerry. Hi, it's Brian. How are Hi.
2: you? I'm doing okay, Brian. What's going on?
6: Oh, not much. Um, thanks for talking to me. Um, yeah, no worries. So, like Stan Bush had the same story where he signed a deal with Scotty Brothers before he was going to be on the soundtrack. Was that the same thing with Lion? Did you sign with Scotty Brothers and then they asked you to contribute to the soundtrack? Yes. Okay. Do you remember how you were asked to contribute, or or how how it came to be that you did the theme song for the movie?
2: You know, it was thirty one years ago, but from what I recollect, Lion was was uh, getting pretty big in Japan, and the Scotty Brothers, you know, they had a few different distribution deals. You know, uh, before they had Sony. Back then, it was CBS. Actually, they had a deal with Atlantic, and they had just come off. Uh, looking for a new distribution, and so they finally got CBS. But I believe it was the Japanese uh, record label Pony Canyon who had said, uh, you know, we're coming out with this, this animated, you know, film that uh, was already had traction in Japan and was, you know, the, you know, the, there was notoriety there. So they were looking for, you know, rock bands to, to get on that uh, soundtrack. However, I think Vince DiCola on that too, isn't he?
6: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Songwriter kind of guy, and he put put together some things. But as, as well as Stan, anyway, uh, and I believe it was Pony Canyon who had suggested to Scotty Brothers, you know, you should try to get Lion to uh, play on this.
6: Okay. Yeah, and you had your Power Love was originally was only released in Japan, right? And then.
2: Correct. It was a yeah, which wasn't a full thing, and uh, it cobbled together some uh, tracks that we had uh, previous. Uh, one included uh, that was, I think, on uh, Friday the 13th, part 15 or something, <laughs> and uh, that was part of that Power Love EP. And then uh, Power Love was re-recorded uh, for the Dangerous Attraction LP.
6: Right, was the original idea just for you to include some song on the soundtrack and then eventually it ends up that you're doing the theme song? Do you remember how it it came to be that i don't, I
2: don't necessarily remember that brian um i I just know that uh that that idea was uh planted to us you know this is nineteen eighty six because the the l p hadn't been recorded yet and didn't come out until uh eighty seven right so this was a prelim kind of to what we were, you know, our, our full length record, the uh, Transformers, that is. And I don't, I don't necessarily know if there was any master plan that, oh, Lion, do the theme song or what have you. If, if I remember correctly, I think, you know, my manager had, you know, floated the idea to, you know, do this track and kind of uh, rev it up a little that's how i seem to recall it and then the when it got recorded i think the the way it turned out it sounded pretty good for them enough to say okay let's let's you know use this as a theme
6: do you remember the process of turning the theme into like a heavy metal song did the did the band spend much time rearranging it and rehearsing it or was it pretty what? easy
2: Yes, we did on both accounts. We rearranged it as well as uh, rehearsed it because it only had uh, basically, from what I recall, the, you know, one verse maybe, and then, you know, the kind of the hook, uh, you know, the Transformers line more than meet the eye, you know. So we had to stretch it into a, I want to say, like a three-and-a-half-minute, maybe four-minute song. We rehearsed over at uh, Mates over in North Hollywood to get that to where it was. Um, And I remember going over that song one day uh, a few times and then we recorded it and it happened very quickly because the band had already done the pre-production
6: on it. It, And it's funny, you know, it's, it's, it was 1986, so it was a different time, but did it, when you were presented with this, with this, did it seem like a challenge to, to turn it into a, a song that wouldn't seem kind of ridiculous because in the end, I think it's really great. I I think it turned out really great, but it must've seemed like, how are we going to do this and not seem silly?
2: I think think you got the right idea, Brian. I mean, here we were, you know, a rock band, you know, a hard rock band, uh, just coming out. And I, I seem to, uh, remember that it seemed like a novelty and kind of like a one-off, the way it was explained to us. Uh, and, you know, there was a challenge because it, you know, wasn't really fitting kind of the batch of songs that we had at that point that we were going to, you know, record for the, uh, the uh, next record there. And I think Cal did a really good job with the lyrics. I mean, looking at the storyboard and trying to, you know, uh, you know, with, with those, the names of the, you know, um, characters as well as you know trying to fit that into a you know into verses and actually sing about it you can hear there's some technicality in there and some of the arrangement i mean there's a bit of breaks and stuff that uh you know that it just didn't exist prior to us getting it you know so it was really lion's interpretation of the uh the theme that had already been written you know
6: yeah were you guys pretty happy with how it turned out
2: yeah I don't think uh at the time i mean I think it was just a matter of fact kind of business, and I can't seem to recall ever playing that song live because the band enjoyed it so much <laughs> yeah. uh it it was uh it was just something at the time that uh you know was presented to us, and uh we we ended up you know recording it but uh I don't think there was too much uh thought uh into oh you know now we got this this uh, theme song or what have you, you know, how, how is this going to affect the the band or, or moving forward? Uh, you know, where, where does this place, I mean, um, we'd already done soundtrack uh, prior to this uh, with, with the Friday the 13th. So, uh, and then we also, were going to do another, we did another soundtrack after this, after uh, Transformers as well, that Scotty brothers had. So, uh, I, I think that uh, looking back in retrospect, I think it turned out, you know, pretty good. I, I believe Richie Wise was the one who produced that track, who had uh, done some of the Lion uh, LP. So,
6: Right. Yeah, he worked with Stan Bush, too.
2: Sure. Well, he was a house producer that the Scotty Brothers knew, and they brought him in for a number of uh, things, I believe. In fact, if you look at that, that next soundtrack that we had done that uh, Scotty Brothers did, it was a uh, Chuck Sheehan movie called The Race. Uh, maybe you know it, maybe not. Yeah, Marilyn yeah. Fenzel, a very, you know, B, C, or D movie. Yeah. Uh, but uh, regardless, Richie was uh, part of that as well. And uh, Richie had known those guys I think from New York days because he had done the first two kiss records. And uh on the strength of that, that's how they brought
6: him in, so Right. Yeah, yeah. I guess really in the end you guys were just being cooperative. The record label asked you to do this and um and you know, so you were just being <laughs> cooperative with the record label, right? Yeah.
2: You know, at that point, I believe, you know, there had been a record contract signed. So at least, you know, with, with, uh, Pony Canyon in Japan. So it was a, you know, logical extension of, okay, we have a, you know, we have a new band here. Let's, let's see if we can, um, have them contribute and, uh, you know, see how it goes. I mean, you know, I look at the, the credits on that record and what have you. And I mean, a guy like Stan Bush or, even the, the Vince, uh, the Cola or whatever. I mean, they certainly could have done the whole thing because if I recall, there's, there's tracks on there that don't have really lyrics and, and it's more, they're just, uh, written like in, uh, you know, in a time and space that it's, it's not like a big production like the way the, the Transformers theme turned out. I'd say that production is a bit bigger than some of the, the other cuts on that record.
6: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you said, you were on the I I didn't realize the Friday the 13th thing came out earlier. So that that was kind of your U.S. debut. And then because I was thinking this song was like your first introduction to an American audience. But I guess you had been on a soundtrack.
2: Yeah, I had done the other. uh, But this this had more, you know, there was more visibility and, you know, there was more the fact that it was, uh, you know, a soundtrack to or theme song, I should say, to a movie. You know, gave it a little bit more visibility as well as, uh, it was easy either easier to talk about or the fact that, uh, you know, there was more flash around it because it was part of a film. And I think also, too, that it, it, uh, timing wise was good for us because in Japan, we were starting to catch a pretty good buzz, uh, about the band, you know, becoming, you know, the new band, the members having previous track records, uh, and, there was high hopes for what this was, you know, what, what this was reported to be the uh, band that is. So I had heard a story years later about Michael Bay wanting to record or wanting to use that transformers theme of, uh, you know, especially our version and uh, didn't want to pay for it. And so he actually, from what I had heard was uh, he got mute math, a rapper kind of guy and, musician rapper guy to cover that song and probably pay him a hell of a lot less. So.
6: Hmm. Oh, well, that sucks. <laughs> they didn't, they couldn't find the money in the transformers budget to, to pay lion. <laughs>
2: say, well, but talking, you know, 200, 300 million to make some of those yeah. big block <laughs> films. And I mean, you couldn't, you know, spare a hundred grand or whatever. I mean, it, it is what it is, but, uh, you know i i I think uh the the you know the way it took on you know the track in itself to this day, if I listen back to it, you know it sounds like the production of the times and uh I think it actually turned out pretty good
6: I agree i I think you did as good of a job as you could have with it, and it i mean it, it seems like it was a real challenge to like i said make something that didn't just seem silly, and I think you guys definitely pulled it off. I think it really turned out good. I enjoy it, so
2: cool, thanks, Brian. Yeah, so people uh you know ask me, you know, my website about it and uh you know how relevant or how non-relevant it is. I don't necessarily know, but it's a part of uh you know, it's part of the past and part of my uh career. So
6: it seems like it was fun. It was probably fun to do. So Sure. Well, do you have any other stories you remember relating to the to the song or the soundtrack or anything?
2: Not necessarily. I mean, I just know that it was done fairly quickly, and I want to say it was recorded at Cherokee, but I might be wrong about that, in L.A., and uh, it was knocked out, you know, pretty much live, which means it wasn't it wasn't a ton of overdubs on the music. Now, the vocal's a different story. Uh, Cal's ex-wife was uh, Victoria. She's on that, singing those uh, choruses. I can recall that. Uh, but other than that, you know, it was a while ago. So
6: yeah, yeah. Okay, well, thanks a lot, Jerry, for taking the time and talking to me about something so, you know, some kind of lo- little piece of minutia from your past. But um, I really there loved- you go. I love the soundtrack, and uh, I thought it would be fun to try to you know put together this episode about it. And so I really appreciate you know you taking the time to talk to me about it.
2: You got it, Brian. No worries. Hopefully, you got some usable bits there. Definitely, and uh, send me. Send me a, you know, an MP3 or something once you cut it together.
6: Yeah, I'll send you a link for sure. Okay.
2: All right. Sounds great, Brian. Have a great day, man.
6: Thank you. You too. Thanks.
0: In June of 1985, Weird Al Yankovic's third album, Dare to Be Stupid, promptly struck gold, just like its Grammy Award-winning predecessor, Eat It. I've always been a huge Devo fan. They've always been one of my very favorite groups. Uh, and every once in a while, I do what I call style parodies. I will do a song which is not a parody of a particular song, but it's, it's an original that's very much in the style of a particular artist or group.
6: And I played the tape for Mark Mothersbaugh back when it came out, and uh, he seemed to enjoy it. He was like, "Wow, that's a really cool synth sound. I wish we could get that." I was in shock.
0: Uh, it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard, and he was—he seemed to enjoy it. He could have been lying, but I don't know.
7: He sort of re-sculpted that song into something else, and um, I hate him for it, basically.
6: i don't know about you but i think i might have a new favorite episode of the podcast as you can probably tell quite a bit of work went into putting this one together i recorded these five interviews over the course of about two months in order we heard from stan bush of the touch fame ernie petrangelo from nrg instruments of destruction band composer vince DiCola, who also wrote dare Larry Gilstrom, guitarist from Kick Axe, billed as Spectre General for the soundtrack. And finally, Jerry Best, bass player from Lion. I want to thank Stan, Ernie, Vince, Larry, and Jerry very much for participating. And thank you, Stan, for giving me Vince's email. And also a big thank you to the guys at Focus on Metal for giving me Jerry Best's email address. When you do interviews like these, you never know what you might learn, and this episode sure is testament to that. For example, we learned that Stan Bush's first band went on to become Warren Zevon's band. We learned that NRG almost signed with Mausoleum Records, and that Ernie was lucky not to be at the station the night of the fire. We learned that Black Sabbath almost did a second album with Ian Gillen for Pasha Records. I always said Pasha, but Larry Gilstrom, who was signed to the label, kept saying Pasha, so we'll go with Larry's pronunciation, Pasha. And it looks like that second album with Ian Gillen would have been a more pop-friendly heavy metal album, so that would have been pretty crazy to hear. An 80s metal album by Black Sabbath with Ian Gillen on vocals. We also learned that kick sold a song to another Pasha band. I think I've figured out which song. Let me know your guesses anyways i love minutia like that great stuff so beyond just hearing about the transformers soundtrack we heard some other really cool little interesting details so if you like this episode spread the word hit me up on gmail rock and or roll podcast at gmail.com send me a message on facebook go over and comment i post every episode on facebook you can comment at the blog page just Google rock and or roll podcast. You'll find all the links. And if you haven't yet, go leave me a review on iTunes. That just helps make the podcast more visible. And now to play us out. What does that mean? To play us out. I don't know what that means to play us out. What does that mean? To end the show? Yeah. So I emailed Vince DeCola and asked him if there was a certain piece from his score that he is maybe most proud of and would like me to play at the end of the episode. And he said Yes. He told me to play the piece called Unicron Transforms. So here it is by Vince DeCola from his Transformers the Movie original score. This is called Unicron Transforms. <laughs>